Good morning. My name is Aubrey, and I'm one of the pastors here. And I want to extend my greeting uh, to Martin's and say I'm very glad you're here. If, if you brought a copy of the Bible, find our Old Testament passage, Genesis chapter 1. It might be one of the easiest parts of the Bible to find if you're new to the Bible because it's right there up front, um, the first, probably the second page in most Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Now, as you're turning there, let me just remind you that uh, we're in the season of Lent. So if you're new to all of this kind of uh, way of doing Christianity, Lent began this past Wednesday on a particular Wednesday. Does anybody know, what did we call last Wednesday? Ash Wednesday, that's right. And so Lent is this long season leading up to Good Friday, the day we remember the crucifixion particularly, and then Easter Sunday, our, our biggest celebration of the year. Now, what's going on with this season we're in is Lent is really a season of preparation. We're preparing for this giant feast, this giant party where we celebrate the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. And the way the church has historically got ready for Easter is through this series of rich and thick and powerful rituals and customs so that churches like ours can go on a journey as a group. And, and the goal of this journey, the goal of Lent, is what Paul said to the Galatians, um, that Christ would be formed in us. That, that's what we're doing this for. Now, let me just say a word about a couple of these rituals that, that we do these practices that we kind of add to our lives during this season of the year. First of all, there's fasting. Why do we fast during Lent? The Bible commends fasting as a spiritual discipline for several reasons. First of all, sometimes in the Bible, we, we see that fasting is a thing we do. We give up some kind of food or something that makes our stomachs um, tell us we're doing something. Fasting is not you give up like TV. I mean, you could fast from TV, but when the Bible talks about fasting, it's not talking about TV for the obvious reasons, but also because fasting is, it's fundamental. It's elemental. If it doesn't hit you in your stomach, then, that, then you're not dealing with what, you can fast those other things, it's good, but you've got, when you fast, it has to be a food or a drink. And one of the reasons we see this in the Bible is that there's this deep connection between our bodies and our souls. And to think that fasting can be about something other than food is to forget that ultimately Christianity is about the incarnation. It's about the body. The body matters. And one of the things that fasting does is in Scripture, it's a way we prepare ourselves for service to God because we're all hungry, and we're all hungry for the wrong things. And fasting is a way we recalibrate our hungers to the right things. A second reason we fast in Scripture is to prepare ourselves for communication with God. I mean, think about your life like you're a giant satellite dish, and fasting is a way you can kind of tune the satellite dish of your life into the frequency where you're best, most likely to be able to have a good communication with God. 
Now, when you read the Gospels, you see clearly that Jesus fasted for those two things, to prepare himself for a season of service and to get into that place where he can most clearly communicate um, with the Father. If you can turn me down just a little bit, I'm afraid I want to talk louder and I'm scared too that it'll hurt somebody's ears. Now, a third reason the Bible teaches us to fast is that fasting is a way to actually, truly, deeply repent. And a lot of Lent is about repenting and purging ourselves. So these three reasons that we practice fasting, they all connect up to the themes of Lent. Now, another one of the rich and thick and powerful customs the church has developed over the millennia for Lent is the whole idea of doing something for 40 days. Lent is this 40-day season preparing for Easter. Now, why 40 days? Because we notice the number 40 pops up all over the Bible in these important places. For 40 days, God poured out his judgment on the earth with rain in the time of Noah. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. The people of Nineveh had a 40-day period of repentance as they... As they um, heard God's judgment pronounced by Jonah. Jesus, of course, fasted and fought Satan as he prepared to launch his public ministry for 40 days in the wilderness. So early on, the church adapted that and said, if we're going to prepare for Easter, let's draw down on this theme we see in scripture. And thankfully, they chose 40 days, not 40 years, right? Now, all of these 40 events, these 40-day, these 40-year events, again, they connect up to the major themes of Lent, preparation and suffering and testing and repentance and discernment and spiritual warfare. Now, in case you're a math whiz and you've counted, if you start on Ash Wednesday and go to Easter, it's actually, does anybody know, any nerds in the room, 46 days. And the reason it's 46 days is because every Sunday is Resurrection Day, and that trumps Lent. So the church has always seen, look on the front of your worship guide. It says the first Sunday, not of, of Lent, but the first Sunday in Lent. And a lot can weigh on a preposition um, in contracts and the fronts of worship guides. All right, So this is a, this is a Resurrection Day. It's a resurrection day in the midst of Lent. And so because the church has always said the center of the universe is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when we are preparing for um, Easter, no matter what's going on in our life, at the end of the day, we always recognize Sunday as a resurrection day. And so um, a lot of people who give up things for Lent, they receive them back on Sunday. So our church kind of does that. Like, I haven't had coffee since Wednesday, but this morning I did because it's a resurrection day. And no matter how much I'm trying to get myself in a repentant state, the greater reality is that Christ rose from the dead and that changes anything. And the stuff we give up for Lent isn't bad stuff. It's good stuff that we're using, we're giving up in order to recalibrate our hungers. And so my children sometimes have set their alarm clocks for 12.01 on Saturday nights and they've woken up in the middle of the night in order to, I don't know, drink or whatever it is. No, that's not it. To have chocolate typically is what it is. All right. So there we are at the beginning of our Lenten journey. Here we are, the first Sunday in Lent. And, and what I'm hoping our church will do during the course of Lent on Sundays is that we will pull back and ask a fundamental question. Why? Why did Jesus die on the cross? 
Why did Jesus rise from the dead? What is that all about? What is it really about? And so if being a Christian at its core, if it means that at its most basic level, we really believe that Jesus was the Messiah of Israel, that he died a brutal death on the cross, and he was raised from the dead three days later, if that is at the center of what being a Christian means, and if this Lenten journey is about going deeper into the center of Christianity, let's for this Lent pull back and try, try to get in a, a clearer state of view what is the cross about? What is the resurrection about? Why did it happen this way? Now, one way to do that is to remember that the Bible is fundamentally a story. The first line of the Bible is, anybody know? In the beginning, which is a really, you know, nice clue that you're about to hear a story, right? It doesn't say, um, the first line of the Bible is not a Jew, a Catholic, and a Buddhist walked into a bar, right? Then you would know, oh, I'm about to read a book of jokes, right? But when the first line of this, of this book says, in the beginning, you know you're about to read a story. So one way to try to come at the cross and the resurrection is to say, if that is the center of the story, the climax of the story, what is the story that the cross and the resurrection are fitting in? What is the story there, the climax? Or another way to put it, if there's a problem, what is the problem the cross and the resurrection are solving? And so that's why today for our readings, as we begin Lent, we've chosen one from the very first book of the Bible and one from the very last book of the Bible. And what we're trying to do is exactly what Jesus was doing in that gospel reading. In the gospel reading, Jesus' followers were really discouraged because he, had been, he died, and, and that was unexpected to them. And the way he helped them understand was he pulled back and told them how his death made the story make sense, how his death was in accordance with the story, the scriptures. All right, so... With that in mind, let's turn to the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And here in the very beginning of the Bible, what we see is that there is a God. And this God is the one true God. He created everything, and he created humans as a unique part of the world, of reality. Now, what is it that makes humans unique in Genesis chapter 1? It's that they are made in the image of God. God created everything, and he created humans different from everything else. Humans have his image. And what that means in Genesis chapter 1 is that humans have a particular job. Humans have a vocation that makes them unique. When God created the universe, he created humans alone out of all the universe, out of everything that exists. He created humans to bear his image in his world. And that's what makes them unique. What makes us different from everything else is not opposing thumbs, right? It's not that some of us um, have bald heads, Chris, Aubrey, obviously, and some of us have long hair. It's not that we can reason, it's not that we're social. The thing that makes us different from everything else is that we bear God's image. And that means we reflect God, right? God makes his image and puts his image in the world and says, have a bunch of babies, fill up the world. In other words, he wants a reflection of his image everywhere in this world. He wants us to reflect his 
image, his wise stewardship into the world. And he wants us to then reflect back to the creator the world's praises. So let me say it again. God created humans to bear his image, to reflect the creator's wise stewardship into the world, and to reflect the praises of creation back to the creator. He made us to be angled mirrors. We reflect God's wisdom and justice and sovereignty and dominion into the world, and we reflect back to God the praises of all creation. And when you read Genesis chapters 1 and 2 closely and you pay attention to the genre and you pay attention to the way this literature functioned when it was written 3,500 years ago and you compare it to other accounts of creation from that time, what comes out is that the way it tells the story of creation is that creation itself is a kind of temple, a place where heaven and earth coexist, where humans function as the image bearer in the cosmic temple. Humans are part of earth, but we reflect the life and love of heaven into earth. In other words, another way the Bible puts this is we are royal priest. Both words, all right? We are royal in that we rule. We rule creation. We have dominion over creation. That's our royal job. Our job is to, is to lead creation the way the creator leads it, to draw out of it its potential. I mean, if you notice the first several days of creation, first God makes everything, then he separates stuff, then he fills stuff up. He fills the sky with the stars and the ocean with fish and the land with animals and plants. And then he turns halfway through the first week of creation, says to humans, tag, you're it. Now you fill it. Do what I've been doing. Take on my job. That's the way we're royal. The way we're priests is that we're supposed to reflect back to the creator the praises of creation. Now this is how creation was designed to function and to flourish. The earth was never designed to flourish without humans doing their job. God has always been a working through humans kind of God. So he creates this thing filled with potential. Then he puts his image in it to act like him with all of his love and all of his mercy and all of his kindness and all of his compassion and all of his wisdom and justice and to move through the earth doing that and drawing all of creation's praises up to the creator. And if humans do that, the whole earth will flourish. Listen again. This is, what, this is all in these verses. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves. So God made the world, put his image in it to do what he does, to steward it with wisdom, with an eye to the end, that it actually all flourishes and works out. That's where the Bible begins. But then, only one page later, this whole project gets thrown off track. And it gets thrown off track when these powerful creatures, more powerful than everything else, betray the creator. And it's a betrayal of worship. 
God created this world to be developed through humans worshiping God and in their gazing and worshiping God to draw down on his goodness, his love, his beauty, his justice, and to, and to spread that in the world. But humans rebelled. And, and, on the, and while we were designed to function like angled mirrors, we shifted our mirror. We were designed to worship the creator, to gaze with delight and gratitude and love on the one true creator, to express his praise in wise and articulate speech. And when we do this, when we worship God in this way, we will be formed into being like him, generous, humble stewards through whom God's creative and sustaining love is let loose in the world. But, Somewhere along the way, humans refuse to do that. Somewhere along the way, humans gave their authority and their power to things that are not God. The fundamental problem with the world is not God made a list of rules and some cat named Adam and some chick named Eve decided they didn't want to do the rules. That's not the problem with the world. The problem with the world is not broken morality. That's a symptom. The problem with the world, the Bible says, over and over and over is idolatry. The problem is that humans are worshipers in what we do. And when we give our deepest love and our highest loyalty and our greatest affection to anything other than the true God, when we forget the true God, that's idolatry. That's the fundamental human problem. Worshiping things other than the true God distorts us. Here's how it works. Humans are made for the life that comes from God and God alone. And when we displace him and we give something else our highest loyalty, when that happens, we fall in love with death. When humans turn from worshiping the true God, we surrender the authority that God gave only to humans. We surrender it to things that are not prepared to rule, and they get drunk on it. Now, that's what we call idols. It's easy to see when you think about money, sex, and power, right? When somebody gives their highest love to money, does it make them into a good person? Does it make them into a generous person? No, you've seen this. You've seen people who want power more than anything else, and you've seen how power becomes powerful in their life and twists and distorts them and makes them gross, right? You've seen people who make money their highest good, and money suddenly, which is meant to be a tool, and it's great as a tool, but it's terrible as a master, It distorts them. You see, when we turn from worshiping God, we give a power to things they were not meant to have. And those things become powerful. That's what the Bible calls the evil forces of the world. Now, the Bible goes one step beyond that. And it says behind all of those powers is a really dark, really concentrated, nebulous kind of more more personable force. The Bible calls the Satan. So somewhere along the way, humans turned from worshiping God and they created a world where suddenly powerful entities were growing up and enslaving people and bringing death into the world. Now, when you turn to the very last book of the Bible, turn to Revelation. 
We looked at how the first book of the Bible began. Now notice how the last book of the Bible begins. Revelation chapter 1, starting in the middle of verse 5. Notice what it says. Glory be to the one who loved us. We're going to come back to that in a minute. Loved. And freed us from our sins by his blood. That's talking about the cross. And made us a kingdom. Priest. Kingdom. Royalty. Priest. To God, his God and Father. Glory and power be to him forever and ever. Amen. Now what we see is that the Bible ends by looking at the cross and, say it, and saying it got us back on track to the original vocation of humans. With now humans can once again, because of the cross, humans can now serve as God's worshiping stewards within God's heaven and earth reality. Now, turn to chapter 5. This comes up over and over in the end of the Bible, but I'll just show one other verse. Look at chapter 5, verse 9. Talking about Jesus, you are worthy to take the scroll. You are worthy to open its seals, for you were slaughtered. Now, that's a reference to the cross. And with your own blood, you purchased a people from God, from every tribe and tongue, from every people and nation, and made them, notice, it doesn't say took them to heaven. What does it say? Why, what was the cross for? The cross wasn't to get us to heaven. Now, when you die, you go to heaven, but that's just a waiting place. The whole purpose is you made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. So you see how the story starts is God made this world, and he loves it. He loves it more than the biggest environmentalist you've ever met. He loves the Rocky Mountains and he loves the Redwood Forest more than any environmental agency in the world. He made it. He made it good and he made humans to draw it out so that it becomes even more amazing, more beautiful, more fruitful, more life-giving. But something, when humans gave their worship away, suddenly death and evil and powerful forces came in and it turns us into people who don't care about what the earth is going to be like a hundred years from now. It turned us into people who don't care about using money and it's most powerful. It turned us into these enslaved creatures, enslaved to money, sex and power and all the other gods. So the reason Jesus died on the cross is to get us back on track, not to get us out of here but to get us back to an earth where we can do what we were made to do. Freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to rule. Verse, chapter one, verse five, verse nine, made us kingdom and priest. So as we look at the cross, as we go from here to Easter and we're trying to ask ourselves, what is the cross all about? What was it for? Why did Jesus die? Whatever answer we come out with has to fit in that story. It has to fit in the story that starts on page one and goes all the way through to the end. It has to be the, the, the missing puzzle piece that's, that makes that picture make sense. So the goal of the cross is to get the original project back on track so that humans will be royal priests, so that we will rule the way God would rule out of love and wisdom and mercy and justice and stop misruling. And secondly, so that we will stop being enslaved to these tendencies to forget God, to give our affections and loyalty and to other things. That's what temptation is. It's to be tempted away from what we were made to be. Now, one last thing. 
If the goal of the cross, as we spend these next few weeks saying, why the cross? Why the crucifixion? If it has to be to solve that problem and to make that story make sense, notice the motive of the cross. Chapter 1, verse 5. What is it saying? It says, glory be to the one who loved us. Over and over and over, when, when the Bible talks about the cross and the resurrection for all of its mystery, I mean, and, and we're going to learn more about it, but there's, there's still a, it's like an ocean depth. I, there's no way our minds can comprehend it. There's profound mystery. But it's got to make sense of the story, number one, and it's got to have love as its motivation. As we journey to the cross and the resurrection, let's remember that it is ultimately, this story is ultimately a love story. In fact, it starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding. It's a romance novel. At the center of it all, the cross and the resurrection is about God's powerful love sweeping through his creation, at last undoing death and evil and dysfunction and putting things back the way they were meant to be, which is flourishing. John says, when you look at John's gospel, for example, right before the crucifixion, when he's having the last meal with his followers, it says this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That's the introduction to the crucifixion. What he's about to do is love them to the end, to the uttermost. There is nothing that love could do for you or this world that love did not do on the cross. So whatever we end up thinking about the cross, it has to be love, not anger, driving it. Jesus said later on in John's gospel, greater love has no one than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then he says, you are my friends. I mean, he couldn't be any clearer. This is love. And and, and, and early in John's gospel, we read the most famous verse in all the Bible, for God so, not because God was so angry, he had to beat somebody and he found his child to beat. No, because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And this theme of God's love revealed gloriously on the cross, whatever we think of the cross, if we don't see and feel in us the love of God and an answering love, then we've missed the cross. Whatever it is in all of its mystery, it is love. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul writes, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, the Messiah died for us. In 2 Corinthians, he says, the Messiah's love leaves me no choice. You get this idea with Paul that over and over at the end of the day, he is defined by the love of God. It's because of the love of God that he's an apostle, that he'll go to any lengths to bring the gospel to the the world. It's the love that drives him. He says in Galatians chapter 2 verse 20, I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. My goal is that by the time we get to Good Friday and Easter, all of us are woken up in the night, not by our anxieties and worries, but by, holy cow, the creator loves me. This is what we're trying to get focused on during Lent. Don't think of Lent as this big Debbie Downer. No, it's the season where we're using all of these tools, these rituals to open our hearts and our minds and our imaginations and our bodies to the deepest reality of the universe. The God who is love, just love to the core of his being, solved the problem. 
And this love, it, it, I'm not just talking about a strong feeling. It, it isn't simply that God lo- loves each of us the way we love our own closest family. Now, he absolutely loves us that way. But it is bigger than that. It's different than that. It's more than that. The love of God is a covenantal love. It's the covenant commitment, the ultimate divine faithfulness. God made a world that he loved, and he refused to let it go. It's the covenant commitment, the ultimate faithfulness to us. It's what the Psalms and Isaiah go on and on about. It's what saves us when we hear the story of the gospel, this love and faithfulness to God. And rising up in us is an answering faithfulness, a responding love. That's what it means to be a child of the kingdom. The New Testament doctrine of the powerful love of God embodied in Jesus and his death and resurrection is the outworking of his covenant commitment to creation. He loved me, said Paul, and gave himself for me. And let's hang on to that as we journey to the cross together. Hang on to the fact that he loved me and gave himself for me. And the victory is ours. Let's pray.